welcome to The Breakdown with Broadcore and Becky, a weekly podcast that breaks down politics, policy, and current affairs. I'm Michael Broadcorp. And I'm Becky Scher. This week, we're having two special guests this weekend of an episode. We're joined today by Representative Walter Hudson from Albertville, who is serving his first term as a Republican member of the House of Representatives from House District 30A, representing portions of Hennepin and Wright County. Before his election to the Minnesota House of Representatives, he served on the Albertville City Council. Representative, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. We're also joined by the Honorable Jeff Kolb. He's a two-time winner of the Tweet of the Week, the first in-studio guest of our podcast, and he's also our first return guest. So I want to thank you for being here, Jeff. I'm honored. You are honored. Set the table a little bit about what, what brought this on. You were on the podcast two weeks ago, and we had a really good conversation about threats against politicians. Yes. And and then also you sent out a tweet about some messaging, which led to an exchange between us. And we thought we'd have a good conversation about those subjects and other things that come up. So let's get things started. Prior to our episode with Senator Karn Housley, your episode was the most downloaded. And that is since you've since been knocked off that throne. Dethroned. Um, yeah. And that was a conversation, I think largely a lot of those downloads we're about your personality, but also your sparkling personality, your interest, but also the subject of the protests at politicians' home, which I thought was really insightful. So for the record, I'm a download denier. I don't believe Jeez until you have turned over the source code that, in fact, Housley beat me. It doesn't okay. seem right. It's not logical. I know she has a lot of kids, grandkids. I don't know how many accounts they have and how many different devices they're downloading this thing onto. She was a statewide candidate, Jeff. She's got a lot of support. I was a citywide <laughs> candidate. I wasn't actually. I was a like one fourth of a little city. So we should yes, we should know <laughs> you are a former member of the Crystal City Council. You're also the head of the planning commission. I'm the new chair of the Charter Commission. New chair of the Charter Commission. Mm, new chair time, of the Charter Commission. Big time stuff. Why don't we start with the protests and lead that conversation? Go back to that conversation, and, and Representative Hudson chimed in, and he issued a, a statement agreeing with it. And I'd like to get your guys' perspective on that that subject first. That's funny. We So we had, a, I think, a good conversation about the growing trend of violent protests, especially protests around, centered around private homes. And a couple of things have happened since we had that conversation. First of all, got a lot of good feedback from that conversation. Not too many stupid replies. But I will note that as soon as, uh, do I have to call you a representative? You can call whatever you want. That's fine. <laughs> can I call you Walter? Absolutely. All right. As soon as Walter sent out his tweet, which which backed, I, I think, and I'll let you speak for yourself, but you started to see some of the kind of classic responses coming in. People who... I don't could, read responses, so I, <laughs> I didn't see any people, of that. People who consider themselves the founding fathers and want to talk about how, how the revolution never would have happened if we didn't protest in front of homes or, or whatever, not understanding reality. But the other thing that happened that was really interesting is there's been a bit of a kerfuffle, if you will, this week about the governor of Minnesota, Tim Waltz, renting the, can we call it a mansion? It is a mansion. <clears throat> the mansion of former Senate candidate Mike McFadden for the low price of $17,000 a month. And when asked about it, Speaker Hortman said that 
The people who are protesting in front of the governor's mansion, that the people who live on that street didn't sign up for this kind of thing, to have these people out front protesting in front of a private residence and some of those things. So it was interesting to hear Representative Hortman, while she didn't connect it to the conversation that we've been having, talking about how how it's not appropriate to for that type of activity to happen. And I think what happened last time, the reason we brought this up last time was Jacob Fry writing an op-ed talking about some of the threats, violent threats that he's received and he and his family have been the target of. And so that was the impetus here. But I think at least among the people at the table, we can agree that there's a line when you're a public official, you sign up for a certain amount of abuse and you're going to get nasty emails and you're going to get whatever that's all part of the game. But as soon as people start showing up in front of your house, or as soon as people start getting violent as a means of protest, that we've crossed a line and that it's not okay. Representative Jeff shared some instances. I was quite surprised by actually some of the instances that you described. You're a you're a former city council member, new member of the legislature. Have you received, aside from, let's start with what's been that transition have people treated you differently when it comes to threats? Because Jeff was describing that it was like a flip of a switch where people, when he was on, went from being joke, joke you public to elected official, that people started to treat him different. Have you experienced that in the transition of being from citizen to city council member then to the legislature? No. For, in my experience, I've only gotten the implicit threats and that social media stuff, right? Nobody's ever actually showed up to my house or confronted me in public. And maybe that's because I'm in Wright County as opposed to being smack dab in the middle of Hennepin. And there's just a different sensibility about things. But I did at the height of the George Floyd stuff as a city council member in Albertville suggest that we entertain an ordinance about targeted residential protest and ultimately the city attorney and the rest of the council decided that it was there wasn't a reason to delve into that until it actually manifested itself as a problem. So apparently being proactive is not something we were interested in in that particular moment. But when I heard the conversation that you guys were having, I first became aware of it via Twitter. I was just really struck listening to 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 Jeff in particular talk about it and saying that why is it that nobody has the courage, that was the word, the courage to say that we shouldn't do this. And I'm thinking to myself, really, this has to be said. I thought it was just like a standard that we all just knew. So I'm like, all right, I guess I'll just be the first one out the door to say, yeah, let's not do this. And I guess it was controversial. I I do recall seeing a couple of those, but usually as soon as I could detect stupid, I just keep scrolling. So I didn't really dig into it. But I also got affirming feedback. There's this organization called Majority in the Middle. The chairwoman of that reached out to me and said, hey, I know a Democrat who might be interested in doing this. And so I don't know where we're at in that process, but there is movement being made on doing something about targeted residential protest. How do you view the balance between First Amendment rights, a complete advocate of what I was a part of the discussion? I think I don't think anything good can come out of being outside someone's home. And I also agree with what Jeff had said in describing that where this is going to lead is going to lead to someone getting hurt. How do you, in, in your kind of framework of it, how do you balance those First Amendment rights with your right to go home at night and not have people chanting outside your house? I think balance is the wrong word. I think the First Amendment on both sides has been abused horrifically to justify behavior that has nothing whatsoever to do with expression. 
you don't have to come to my house to express yourself. I have an email. I have a mailing address. I have a phone number. You have Twitter. You have social media. There are all sorts of platforms that you have to express your speech. The idea that your speech is constituted by your presence in a particular space, I think is a fundamentally flawed idea. And it's used to justify things like trespass and other violations of people's personal and property rights. You had made a good point about what you thought the intention was to coming to someone's house, which is that it was meant to... I think I used the word terrorism. Yeah, so... Uh, and I did it on purpose. Expand on that for just to... There is no reason to come to your house except for to send the message, we can get to you. It's the kind of thing you read about or watch on mafia movies, right? There, that somebody shows up outside your house. When I was in, I lived in Arizona for a few years. It was a common tactic of, of America's Sheriff Joe Arpaio to send a squad car to sit outside your house if you've been talking bad about him. You write, you write a, an op Oof. or do something that Joe didn't like. You'd end up with, uh, with a squad car outside your house. It's a very common intimidation tactic. And exactly. That's, and that's the only reason for it. There is no valid reason, especially because if you're a, if you're a public official, there's plenty of places. The state capitol is open. City Hall is open. We've had protesters at City Hall. I don't have any issue with protesters gathering in the parking lot at City Hall and doing their doing and protesting. Nobody's trying to say you can't protest. We're saying you can't protest in front of somebody's house. It's a fairly narrow um, restriction. And I think it, in a lot of the situations we talked about it is when it comes down to the intimidation, when it's trying to get when they had the Minneapolis city council member in a car trying to get her to sign something, getting the individuals to change a vote or, or persuade them to vote away when it comes to, or, or oh, we've seen them outside the judge's house when it comes to the Kim Potter trial or, or Dante Wright. These different situations where it's quite literally trying to not just express themselves and express how they feel about a situation, but saying, you need to change this way. You need to charge someone with murder. You need to vote this way or else, essentially. Right. And that's where we the line really gets crossed. And Michael, if I could be allowed to hijack the conversation just a little bit. But you were late, so you might as well <clears throat> hijack it too. I thought we weren't going to get into me being late, Michael. Okay. Why keep was going. I late, Michael? All right. All right, keep going. Another conversation that we didn't really flesh out, but that Walter and I started to have last night around the concept of consistency. Because it was, to your point, Earlier, you didn't think it would be a controversial statement to just say, this is a bad thing and it's always a bad thing. But we've seen many politicians who can only say this is a bad thing when they like the person who's being targeted. And they can't say this is a bad thing when they don't like the person being targeted. I made the statement last time we talked about this, Jacob Fry would have been a hero if he would have stood up and said, no, you can't protest outside Bob Kroll's house. Because they were mortal political enemies at that moment, but they crossed the line. And if you got him in private, I'm sure he would admit that was absolutely beyond the pale. But he wouldn't. He did not have the courage to stand up and speak on behalf of someone who was his political opponent. And that's where you need a little bit of that consistency. And I can't remember what the question was you asked me last night. Is consistency even possible? That's the, and I don't know. I wish it were. It should be, but but there's too much of 
if you want to get to the root of kind of what's wrong with politics today, it's that it's okay if I do it, but it's not okay if you do it and, or vice versa. And that, and it all depends. People seem to make these judgments based on if they like the people involved or if they don't. And the fact that we can't have hard lines on things and black and white things and saying, okay, this is okay. And this is not okay. Is it ever okay to storm the Capitol building of, of a, is it okay to storm the Capitol, the U S Capitol or the Capitol in Tennessee, like happened a few days ago here. So can, but you'll find when things like that happen, that you have people on opposite sides of the issue that can only condemn the action if it happens, if they don't agree with what's going on. And that I think is a fundamental issue that we have in our modern discourse. Do you think there's a, an opportunity? Do you think this is the type of issue that needs a legislative proposal to help poli- to help deal with and address? Or do you think this is best left to cities to deal with in- individually? I don't see any reason not to do it as a statewide issue because there are no circumstances, in my view, where it should ever be okay to target somebody for residential protest. And I think there are two kind of pre-existing areas of law or at least legal philosophy that justified this. One is nuisance law. So you were on a city council, Jeff, I've been on a city council. We have nuisance laws, ordinances that say, for instance, you can't have a music festival in your front lawn without a permit that causes your neighbors to no longer be able to peacefully enjoy their property. Well, implicit is that, or implicit in that is the idea that we have the right to peacefully enjoy our property. I have the right to go home every night and to spend time with my kids and my wife and to do whatever I want to do in my home without having my enjoyment of that property disrupted by the conduct of other people, including my neighbors who have that same right in their property. And so the idea that as an exercise of your First Amendment you get to encroach upon my ability to enjoy the peace in my home is utterly insane and there's no justification for it. Second area of law I would look at is when we think about the Second Amendment and gun rights and self-defense, even the most ardent gun control fanatic would grant you that if you are in your own home and somebody intrudes upon it and you have nowhere to retreat to, you have the right to self-defense. Nobody's going to say you can't defend yourself in that situation, not a single person. And in a similar sense, when it comes to speech, the right to speak and to express yourself politically is not the right to be heard. You do not have the right to a platform, to a stage, or to an audience. Everybody can walk away and you can't keep them captive. When I'm in my house, I've got nowhere to retreat to. That's where I belong. It's not where you belong. And so if owning a home means anything, it certainly means not having to endure somebody screaming at you and intimidating your kids and making your babies cry because they've got something to say. There's a big difference between Summit Avenue and Sunfish Lake. Do you think that the, that, and what I mean by that is Sunfish Lake is a very secluded, wealthy neighborhood city in in Minnesota. It's probably one of the, if not the wealthiest zip code in the state, uh, certainly one of the most wealthy in the entire United States. The governor's home being there provides much more of an inability for people to picket, protest, uh, raise concerns outside his home. That was, as Jeff pointed out, that was one of the concerns or one of the reasons why this, the costs went up on that. Do you think that's a valid concern? Do you think that should have been, do you think that should have elevated the discussion on, do you think that should have been a parameter of which location was picked 
based on the ability of the governor to have to prevent that type of behavior from going on? I think if we employ the concept of consistency that Jeff is evoking, then it being the governor's residence shouldn't make a difference. His residence is his residence. A residence is a residence. And if that's where the guy lives, we shouldn't be protesting outside of it. Correct. Where do you think this issue goes? Is this something that... I really don't know. I don't know. I have, I always have absolute faith in the legislature to let me down. (laughs) And always expect the legislature to, to fail. And so I think I would expect that people will murmur about it and they'll, behind closed doors, they'll agree. And, but do we have someone who has the courage to stand up and say, no, we're going to make this along, we're going to do it. And who, someone who can build that coalition so that Walter Hudson and Jacob Fry can stand on the, behind the podium next to each other and say, we may not agree on anything else politically, but we agree that don't, don't come protest outside his house. Don't come protest outside my house. Don't threaten somebody. Don't get violent. You have, you, you can speak, you can protest, you can do these things, but there are parameters that we have to have. I think that would be incredibly powerful. And I applaud you for speaking out the way that you did. And also to you, Jeff, I think that it was a, a real good, it was a great episode and a lot of people agreed with you. Not as good as the Housley episode, I guess. Uh, <laughs> yeah, not as good as the Housley episode, but it was great message and I'm proud of you for delivering it. And again, bravo to Representative Hudson for going out about it. And one thing I will just add is I am, I think all of us agree that this should happen. This shouldn't be a controversial thing. I would argue that what if you did link up with a Democrat, I would argue that there would be folks likely on both sides. I can think of some groups or organizations in particular that would be very loud and vocal that would put a lot of pressure. In particular, maybe it's my Republican mindset. I can think of a lot of Democrats, uh, radical liberal groups in particular, that would put a lot of pressure on absolutely my right to go to a house to make my voice heard for that to be heard and for me to do so in an aggressive manner. So one, I hope it happens. I hope this bill is introduced and I hope that votes have to be taken on something of this sort, because I think it would be very telling to see where legislators in particular, again, because of my, (laughs) my background, I would be very curious of where some of those Democrats vote on this and should they want to appease some of these radical groups or not. Yeah, it would be very fascinating. I think it would be a scenario that we haven't yet seen, certainly this session, where that board would be lit up like a Christmas tree, red and green, but it wouldn't be along party lines at all. And it would be a random grab bag of where people fall down on the issue. And when it comes to political pressure, I can imagine that you and I are thinking of the same groups that would be opposed to this. At least with me, in order for it to actually be effective as pressure, it has to come with a rational argument. And I cannot conceive of a rational argument why it should ever be okay to stand outside someone's house and make a fool of yourself and disrupt their peaceful enjoyment of their property. Do you think, like you said, it wouldn't be along party lines. Do you think it would be more of maybe the middle, like some of the far right and far left candidates or electeds would be the ones maybe opposed to this and more of the whatever 60, 70% in that middle, if you could see me, you could see that I was making these motions. Hand right, motions right. But that would maybe be supportive of this? I honestly don't know because I can conceive of people 
regardless of their ideological purity, however we're measuring that, I can see people entertaining the argument that you have a free speech right to protest and I'm on the side of the constitution and I'm not going to, whereas I obviously, based upon how I'm arguing, don't think that applies at all. I think that's a complete red herring, but I could see people, regardless of where they align overall on ideology, entertaining that argument. Let's break down the next subject. Jeff, you had sent out a tweet that, that, oh, that sent out a tweet that led to the next discussion. So why don't you describe your tweet that Representative Hudson engaged on it, and I chimed in on too, and describe that from your perspective. Oh, is this the one on school lunches? Yeah. Are we talking school lunches? Just a general messaging subject. I Okay. All right. Let me back up, set the table. All right. The point I made on school lunches was that I want to make sure I accurately reflect what I actually said and not maybe what I intended to say. But <laughs> what I said, or my point on school lunches is we, the fight on school lunches, and we're talking about the concept of, what is it, universal school lunches. school lunches or no cost to the student Correct. lunches. And that the battle on that was lost when Republicans chose to lose the last election. And they should have just rolled over on that one and not looked like assholes because it was a bad did there was no upside to the argument against the school lunch program and it was all downside representative hudson your thoughts yeah so i think my frustration there and draz made this really difficult for us in that he gave the comment that of course everybody picked up and he ended up in vanity fair and rolling stone which we only get that kind of exposure when we say the wrong thing he really clouded the messaging the, our frustration was it was just fundamentally incorrect to suggest that this provision was necessary in order to feed hungry kids kids are eating in the state of minnesota they are getting their lunch we have a free and reduced lunch program we have plenty of people who are quite proud to be able to provide lunch for their own children and are not asking for or require this help. The argument that there are people on the margins who are falling through the cracks, okay, let's figure that out. Let's raise thresholds. Let's take care of them. But the idea that we needed to just replace this with a program that provides lunch and breakfast for all children at the cost of, what was it, $250 million in a time where we have so many actual needs that people are clamoring for down at the Capitol... It's really frustrating to see, because in order to sell that, what the Democrats did is they had to obfuscate and go from the specific to the ambiguous and present this as something that it wasn't, which is feeding hungry kids. And so to watch that and to not correct the record and say, no, this is just wasting your money to solve a problem that doesn't exist was something that I guess we couldn't avoid stepping into. So this is something I think Michael and I a lot of times talk about some of our frustration with Republican messaging and some things that make it more difficult. And in this situation, the Draz example we did discuss and how it makes it difficult to even have kind of a fair, thoughtful argument about it when you sometimes say inflammatory or controversial things of that sort. Do you think that distracts from the overall Republican cause at times when we veer into some of that controversialness in a, in a bill like this? Certainly. Yeah, it definitely distracts. I think there has to be some acknowledgement of why it distracts. So I can tell, even in ju just having been down there for three short months, 
I know when I'm making the case effectively and when I'm not, because when I'm not, I get echoed. And when I am, it's crickets. I don't get a lot of media requests or attention after I make the case very well. They're not interested in echoing that. It's only when they can clip something that makes it sound Looney Tune by their estimation that they decide to echo that. And we're working at a disadvantage in that way. And again, going back to the concept of frustration, the, a lot of us don't like the idea and are not willing to yield to the idea that because that's the environment that we're working in, we have to tiptoe while the Democrats just lead with their crazy. They don't pull their punches at all. They make crazy statements, radical statements all the time, radical proposals proudly and wrap it up as though it's the next coming. And we're, we're supposed to pull our punches and watch our mouth and be genteel as we tiptoe through the daisies. And it's, I don't believe that that's politically effective to be like that, to be weak in terms of our engagement with ideas and with the culture. And I also don't think that we're going to get to a place where the Overton window ever starts to shift back in our direction if we're not on the front lines fighting for what we actually believe. So it is a follow-up because I hear that. And we certainly, we've talked, I've spent time at the state party and believe that Republican activists in our base certainly want fighters. They want strong messengers who are going to spend their time fighting for all of us, correct? The issue I have, is, and this is something Senator Housley said, you know, at times what you, message works in Alexandria isn't going to work in Stillwater, sure, right. and that we have to message for different audiences. We don't necessarily have to vote as Republicans for different causes or vote differently. We just have to talk about things differently. So in that kind of distraction measure, I spent time working in communications, and sometimes those things that maybe should be held for an audience like the red meat base that rather than on the House floor when it's maybe not going to make a difference with the policy itself, but could serve to detract from the, from, again, that thoughtful message. Is there some thought that goes into what audience you're speaking in front of and if that's the best way to get that message across or if it's going to, again, because at the end of the day, we need to win elections to be able to change that policy, whether that's 2024, 2026, whatever it might be. And so we need to make sure that we're not just saying, mm -hmm. you know, throwing out the Looney Tunes, like you said, right. statements that the press is going to, because they do, they glom onto that stuff. Yeah. So that's definitely a consideration, no doubt. Um, I think that there are circumstances, and there have been plenty, the times that I personally choose to not get up on the House floor certainly outweigh or outnumber the ones that I do. And that is all not necessarily strategic, but just recognizing that if it's already been said by somebody else, I don't need to say it again. Or if I don't have a unique perspective, there's no reason for me to get up. But then there are times like last week, last Thursday, in considering House File 146, the trans refugee bill, where you have to just throw all that out the window of worrying about how it's going to play because the fundamental premise that's being presented needs to be challenged. Because if you roll over and you just allow them to go forward with the claim, that bill was presented under the premise that it is medically necessary and life-saving to cancel the parental rights of residents of the United States from outside Minnesota in order to subject their children to, and I'll try to be gracious here, um, 
medical intervention to halt the natural development of puberty and also surgical alterations in order to conform their body with their perception of themselves. If you just let that premise lie there on the table unchallenged, then to my view, you've lost the entire fight for literally everything because you peel back the onion on that and one layer deep you get to the notion that a man can either be or become a woman and vice versa. And if you peel back the onion on that, you get down to the fundamental philosophical premise, which was sent to me in an email from a resident over the past week, which is reality is not fixed. And if reality is not fixed, if there is no objective truth, then I don't know what we're doing here. What's the point of the process? Why are we even having a conversation? There, the, the classical liberal order is predicated upon there being some fundamental essential truth that we can all agree upon. Otherwise, there's no reason to not just slaughter one another. Excuse me, if I may. The, the broader point I think I was trying to make is, this is always funny coming from me, as I, Michael and I talked about this a little bit, because I've been given feedback in my life that I need to choose my battles. And my response has typically been, I do choose my battles. I just happen to choose all of them. And, but I guess the bigger point I was trying to make specifically around school lunches is that there are things that are happening at the Capitol that are worth talking about, fighting about, having those conversations about. And everyone's going to have their different line as to what those topics are and what the uh, on which issues. It makes it very hard if you have distracted and used up all of the oxygen fighting about school lunches, which was not something that you were ever going to stop in. And to, to my mortal enemy, Karen Housley's point, messaging toward the middle, right? School lunches is probably a I don't know. I don't have any polling on it, but 75, 25, 80, 20 topic, you were going to lose, right? There wasn't a, there wasn't a huge um, moral principle at stake. And so that would have been one that I would have liked to see people just sit out of or find a way to bring the votes around I think there were some creative things that could have been done around school lunches, specifically around the fact that the last time Democrats tried to feed people, they ended up buying a bunch of sports cars and condos for a bunch of criminals. And so I think there were some creative ways to get into that. But instead, we got the monumentally stupid soundbite of I've never met a hungry person, mm -hmm. which made it very difficult. And I think I think just set the set the cause, if you will, whatever you define the cause as, but set that back because we wasted oxygen arguing about something that we had no chance to affect and didn't have that then ability to try and go after the important things. And I think that's my bigger point on messaging is that smaller targeted messaging specifically around the things that people agree with, mm -hmm. because we have a problem. You have to get, you have to win elections or you can't cover. And I think most people agree with that. I don't, there, there is the, who's the guy, Jim DeMint, is that the guy who was, who would rather have 30 rock solid senators that agree with him than a bunch of squishes in the caucus or whatever, which is fine if you're there to be in a debate society, but you actually have to pass laws to get things done. And so that's always been my opinion when people 
have knocked me for not having principles in the past. I've always told them I'm a winitarian at heart. That's what I winitarian. We need to win in order to because you can't govern if you can't win elections. And so from a messaging standpoint, to focus the messaging around the things that are not that you're not underwater on. I don't I'm not going to dig into the specifics of the bill that you were just referring to, but I think that to the general public, I believe the Democrat position is on is reversed on that and underwater, and that there is a smart messaging against some of the kind of radical things that they're trying to do, but it makes it very hard if you burned up all that energy on school lunches, which is 80-20 the other way. Yeah, no. I think you're absolutely right in terms of that principle. And in retrospect, the messaging on school lunch could have and should have been more disciplined. We definitely could have benefited from it not going in the direction that it did. There's no question. What I'll interject into that is that when we talk about messaging, I think sometimes we talk about it in terms of there's this uh, smoky filled back room somewhere where the message is decided. And that's just not the case. Any member with an election certificate in either chamber can get up and say whatever they want. And so I think when you look at the House floor debate we had on House File 1, the abortion bill, the PRO Act, that was one probably largely because it came so early in the session and a lot of us were first-term members and here we are going into this incredibly impactful piece of legislation. There was a lot more discipline around our approach to that debate and how we talked about it simply because we were largely going to leave it to the people who knew what they were doing. And that kind of has loosened up as the session has gone on and people have gotten more comfortable in their skin and are willing to get up and say the things that they want to say. But as we get into these big omnibus budget bills, I think you're going to see more of a return to having a strategic vision of what it is that we're trying to achieve on the House floor. So that is a principle that is, it's not like nobody knows down there what it is that we're supposed to be doing and what the goal is. It's just that sometimes, like you say, different people have a different perception of where that line is and when's it time to throw down. And then also there are every once in a while, these kind of bizarre bouts of fancy that people have about the way to make their point that take the attention, take the oxygen out of the room to use your analogy. I want to break this down a little bit. And this is what we like to do here. Break it down. Break it down. I served as communication instructor in DC at the state party. Michael's been in that role as well. And no, while there's not some private smoky back room, I will lift the curtain a little bit that there is usually some cohesive messaging within the caucus or within the conference in D.C. I know D.C., a member of Congress, has a larger staff. And so like when I would, Congressman Emmer or others, when they go to the House floor or go to committee, they largely are going with a prepared piece of paper that they have spent time with their staff to develop and largely making a choice whether they are going to go along with what the conference or caucus has, has presented them or go rogue or, or go with a unique statement. So I guess I have a couple questions on this. First, is that when you go to the House floor to speak, is that a planned out, thought out, bulleted thing sitting in front of you or are you winging it? We're definitely provided with 
research and suggestions for how to talk about the bill that we're debating. And in the case of school lunches, I would say that the way that I talked about it here is very much in line with our messaging, our actually decided messaging. The, and it's said very often, you, everybody has an election certificate. You can do whatever you want. Absolutely. We're not telling you what you have to do. And it's always such, such a weighted statement because the unsaid portion is, but we really hope you will choose to do what we <laughs> said you should do. And most of the time that happens. I don't know what it's like in the Senate, but it certainly seems as though they've had a little, a couple more deviations than we have, which is ironic since it's usually the other way around. And also you bring up Congress, boy, they really seem like they've been quite a rat's nest of factions within the Republican caucus out there in Washington, D.C. And so I don't know how well they've been able to focus their messaging. But it's always a battle, right? Mm -hmm. Battle between hurting the cats and convincing everyone that this should be the message and it's the right message and it's going to achieve the goal of countering what the majority is doing and placing us in a position to prevail in 2024. And I think if I could, the Michael, something I've said to you in the past also is that all of you are going to end up judged by the worst of you, right? You're all going to be tarnished with. So everybody got to wear that Draskowski quote around their neck. And, and I don't know, and I understand the challenge of it, right? Because there are people who I think probably don't care, right? Who think that that's fine. And I said what I needed to say, and and I don't care what the consequences are. So it comes into that whole debate about team player versus your right as a as an elected official to express yourself and all those things. I don't know. I don't think that this is. A, I don't think it's an easy thing to solve, right? I don't think it's something that you can just wave a magic wand and suddenly everybody's on on message discipline, right? But I think that we do have historical proof that when everybody rows in the same direction, we get better results. And there, and I think there's a big difference between, I think the immediate, the immediate reaction from, I would say, probably the less informed, that's the polite way of putting it, is that if you're going to speak from talking points, that, that it's a more hollow message, or you're not in, you're not, whatever, you're using poll tested statements or whatever it is, right? There's a reason why you poll test statements, right? Because you want to talk, you need to meet people where they are and figure out the best way to convince them to come. You're selling them something, right? You're selling voters something, a message, the notion that you should be able to govern, those types of things. And so you have to get them on board. And there are tools that you can do there are tools that are better than maybe your gut, activist A, right? That we can employ to be a little more scientific about it. That doesn't have to mean abandoning all principles and not and things like that. And that kind of gets to what was going to be my next point is that we talk a lot about how the Democrats that we're seeing in the legislature and governor walls were not the same people we saw on the campaign trail last time. And I think that's largely because they were so disciplined that they knew to speak to the middle and hide some of this liberalism, this radicalness that they are now instituting. I think that was a choice, a cause, a discipline that, that they employed. And to another comment you made, when I was at the party, one of my roles was, or even in doing some campaign work, the job was to tie every Democrat 
to Ilhan Omar, to tie every Democrat to AOC, to tie every Democrat to Keith Ellison and those statements, knowing very well that a Tom Bach up in the third district or wherever, up in northern Minnesota was very much not the same. And defund the police, all of those kind of things, looping them all in because we could. If you don't denounce it, you are a part of it. So is there some, from your colleagues or in this situation with Draz, did you have conversations with him? Are there conversations being had about how some of these statements and expressing these yourself and whether it's the unique statements that might go outside of, of what is presented to you, how that might reflect on other members? I'm not privy to any specific conversations that have been had with Draz. I have not talked to Draz about it. I'm sure there's probably been some casual conversation that has taken place around what was said. What I can tell you is that in our cognizant of the fact that, as was stated earlier, you're judged on your worst day, you're judged on your worst statement, you're judged on, the team is judged on the weakest link and all of that. And so there has been, as I think is probably common, some conversation around that, tension around that, because what people don't want is to feel as though they're being controlled or they're being told what to do or they're being restrained. And so you have to genuinely persuade people that the strategy is the strategy and that it's a good strategy and you, they should go along with it and engage with it. And that's the same as any team activity, right? You work in an office, you're on a sports team, you've got to all be on the same page and you can't at the end of the day, you really can't force it. You have to lead through example and persuasion sure. that this is the plan and it's a good plan. Um, I think for the most part, we've been successful with that. That's the problem in politics is that it only takes once for it to seem like everything's falling apart. And with the Draz thing, again, having not spoken to him directly about it, I have to imagine he's gotten plenty of feedback and had plenty of reason to to reflect upon the statement and its strategic value. One of the one of the things we just came through was a governor's race though where I think that tactics and strategies and that's one of the problems I had with the Jensen campaign was just not fully embraced. And this was a campaign off this was a campaign that didn't have a campaign office. And they thought that was a smart strategy. And so I wonder if you if, I remember Republicans really getting excited when Yunkin was elected in Governor of Virginia. Governor Yunkin ran a very poll-driven, principled campaign. He ran a campaign that was heavy on consultants, heavy on strategy, heavy on focus groups. And I think there is a misconception out there as to how Republicans win in other places, in part that they embrace tactics, strategies, good polling, good message. Used Jensen as an example. Glenn Youngkin rarely talked about abortion when he was running for governor of Virginia. Look at the messaging that came out of the Jensen campaign about abortion. It was all over the place. And he found a way to upset two sides of a, the three sides of a two-sided issue. And so I hope that what I think sometimes is glossed over a bit is the work that's being done behind the scenes on these campaigns to win. The amount of polling, the amount of, of work that was done on Youngkin's campaign consultant-driven, strategy-driven to get him across the finish line in the state of Virginia. That could happen here in Minnesota if, I think, Republicans were more open to embracing those types of messages and strategies and tactics. And right now, I think that's one of the frustrations I have. Let me tell you, from the perspective of somebody who has come out of activist roots, like deep, 
Tea Party activist roots as to why that is an obstacle in this state particularly. The widespread grassroots perception of political consultants and any sort of like scientific approach to campaigning is that it's a giant grift that people have figured out a way to profit from losing and that if you go along with the advice that's being given by the professionals, you're just setting yourself up to lose again. Now, I'm totally open to learning that that's not true. That'd be, it'd be a fantastic discovery that there is indeed hope in trusting professionals. But what I will say before I let you guys respond to that is, this is kind of my frustration when I hear things, I listened to the Housley episode today. When I hear things about talking to the middle, talking to the center, trying to appeal to the suburbs, I sense within that the implication that we need to pull back from talking about the things that we care about and talking about the things that we actually believe in order to pivot to a glossy kind of bastardization of what we believe that isn't actually true or accurate. And my sense is that we can reach those folks and we can reach folks in constituencies that currently aren't voting for us at all, whether it's uh, North Minneapolis or educators, teachers. By by listening to them primarily, having conversations with them, building relationships, and then demonstrating how our principles and values actually apply to the actual problems in their lives. It doesn't necessarily have to be this sort of, here are my talking points about why being conservative is good, so much as it, uh, just presenting a sense of authenticity and actually caring about what people think and what they need in their lives, and then let the chips fall where they may. There is a danger of going off script, but I think you have to be willing to go a little bit off script with people in order to get them to trust you. I'm going to break a protocol and say something, and the only way I can say it is by swearing, and it's going to be, I'm going to give a kid warning sign to my kids here. I, I, when I remember worked on a lot of campaigns in the past, and people would talk about authenticity, and they would use that as kind of code to justify or explain non-political behavior. And I would say, yeah, I know a lot of authentic people. I went to school with a lot of assholes who are authentic assholes. And so authentic is a double-edged sword in a sense that I think Scott Jensen was very authentic this last election cycle. I think Minnesotans saw exactly who he was. And I think, I think that his campaign, the way he ran it, the way he messaged, is the best example that Republicans have to why Housley's statements make more sense because Scott Jensen was a messaging mess, had multiple sides of a number of polarizing issues. And I will say to you, he cost Republicans opportunities in the state. And I think that Republicans need to understand that. And so having listening to Senator Housley, listening to Chairman Hand, who was just on a great episode, he talked about this too, how we need to have candidates that can connect to all these places, but they have to be able to message to where voters are and they can win in these areas. And that's ultimately what I think is the rub, is that this authentic, this claim of being authentic, people can be authentic, but if you're going to be if you're if you being your authentic self is going to turn off voters like I think Scott Jensen did, maybe seeking elective office isn't the best place for you. And I would say, again, I spent I'm going to go back to working in Congress. I wrote scripts for a living for three years, wrote scripts or speeches. It was when 
I did both campaign side and official side. So sometimes I would write for a BPOU or CD convention, right? We talk about abortion. We talk about guns. We talk about constitution. We'd go to a chamber of commerce event and we talk about taxes and spending and business to business dealings. And we go to a veterans event and we talk about VA care and all of that. All of those can be authentically the same person. It's just knowing your audience and knowing when to talk about what. So in the situation of Karen Housley, when Senator Housley mentioned that, I don't think she's saying put on a face and take these talking points and, and don't be yourself. I think she's talking about when you're going and door knocking, I live in Fridley, Minnesota, you might be talking about the price of eggs and gas prices and public safety. And then when you go to Wright County, which is arguably the most conservative county in the state, you can talk about and lean heavily on some of more of those socially conservative things of abortion. So I don't think it has at all anything to do with being inauthentic and changing your core belief. I think it's simply knowing the audience and going into the heart of, if you're sitting in the heart of Minneapolis, talking about a pro-abortion message, or I'm sorry, a pro-life message is simply not going to win you over votes there. You're waving your hands. I know because I have 12 points I want (laughs) to make, but that's how this always goes. You have to be an adult and let other people talk. So two things. I mean, to, let's go back to your Yunkin point quick. Would you rather have, and this is, this is rhetorical, right? But would you rather have a guy who runs for office and spends a lot of time talking about abortion and loses? Or would you rather have a guy who doesn't talk about it during the campaign, but then can sign pro-life legislation when he's the governor? And that's the mentality that I think gets lost on activists. I will begrudgingly admit that I also came up from the activist core. So I get it. I think that to the other point, to Walter's other point, though, is that you're not wrong about the grifter class. We do have a grifter class in Minnesota. We have people who have found a way to make a lot of money by losing campaigns. And I can give you a list of them when we're done here. And that's it's been behavior that we accept far too long. And one of the things that I say a lot that I get a lot of flack for is that it feels like Republicans in Minnesota like to lose because when the losers come back on stage at the next state convention, we give them a standing ovation. We make excuses for them. Doug Wardlow should be afraid to come to a GOP convention, right? Scott Jensen should be persona non grata in he, but I guarantee the next convention we have, he's going to end up walking up on stage and he's going to get a big standing ovation and people are going to talk about how the media colluded against him or whatever, instead of holding them accountable. And here's the thing, when you decide that you're going to run for office, you are making the promise to those people that are supporting you, that you are going to do everything you can to win and that you're going to do it better than anybody else. If that were true, if you really did the best that you could, then you know what? Yeah, okay, it sucks that you lost. But that's not what we're seeing. We don't see put the best effort out there. We see excuses and we see what's that? Michael said there's this clip. What's the movie about the baseball thing? Mr. Baseball. I led this when he gets in, he's about to get Tom Selleck. He's playing for the Yankees and he's, he's about to get traded away to a team in Japan. And his argument as to why he's still performing is that he led the team in ninth inning doubles in the month of August. 
And that's what you hear from Republicans and the people who run their their campaigns. We raise more money than any other losing campaign in history. Wow, that's fantastic. You lost, right? We carried, I remember seeing the Jensen team spin on how many counties they carried. We carried all but the counties with people in them. Okay, <laughs> great. But you lost. You and that, you didn't just lose. You got destroyed and you, you hurt us in the House and the Senate. And so that's the thing is that I think there needs to be this there, we mi- we're missing a culture of accountability around that, and we allow these grifters to hang on because I don't know they're local people or whatever the deal is. But there are so the activists aren't a hundred; they're not wrong that there are people around here who don't know what they're doing, or that's not true. I'm sorry, they know what they're doing, but they just don't care about winning. It just doesn't matter. Winning is, and we see that. We're not going to open the can of worms around endorsements here, but we see that where people think that winning an endorsement is the finish line. And it's, we got, all right, we got him endorsed. He's there. All right. We got him through the primary. Okay. Are you running a general election campaign? Do you have lists? Are you walking? Are you making the calls? Do you have TV commercials on the air? Or are you going to just complain about the fact that the other side has more money? You have to live in reality. And money comes to winners. The RGA isn't a bad, the Republican Governors Association isn't a bad organization. They're just not going to invest in a loser. And they read the polls and they know what's going on. And I would rather have, I would rather have more Republicans in office than not, because then they can make laws that are not the crazy things that we're seeing today. So I don't, I looked at what's happening at the state capitol and I don't like it. And I would like things to be different. And I, so that that's where I'm Your thoughts. coming from. Yeah, I completely agree. I'm struggling to find a point of disagreement. I think. All right. I, that's a wrap. <laughs> maybe the goal isn't to find a point of disagreement, but rather a point of application. And um, I think we're in a good opportunity as a Republican Party right now for a couple of reasons. And this is going to be controversial. I love the optimism. Let's hear it. This is going to be controversial. One of the reasons is that a lot of my friends no longer have election certificates. A lot of people who I agree with when it comes to ideology and what the end goal is and what happens when we do win are no longer there. And they were engaging in behavior and tactics that was a detriment to having that kind of team play mentality that is required in order to have a cohesive message. So that's helpful because we don't have that distraction anymore. Secondarily, I think the party is in a position where we've hit a kind of rock bottom and we can only go up from here. And I think Chairman Han, and I did listen to that episode as well, is the man for the hour in that he has the sobriety and the quiet calmness to be that referee and that moderator to put in a good faith effort to try to fundamentally change the way we approach this whole thing as a party, which desperately needs to happen. And again, I'm an activist. Jeff is an activist, or we used to be, or however you want to phrase it. I very much appreciate the grassroots. It's very important that people have access to the process and that we listen to them and that we're taking their opinion seriously. But the goal does have to be winning. That's the only reason why the political party exists is to be a winner so that you're in a position to actually affect policy. And that's not the mentality universally. I have, I and others have heard 
BPOU officers say that their mission is to hold their people accountable. Right. No, it's not. Your, you, your mission is not to hold your people accountable. It's to get them elected. That's your mission. And that's what every BPOU meeting should be about. If you have doubts about whether or not the people that are representing your party in office are the right people, then don't be part of the party process because that's the way you object is by not being there, not trying to undermine them through that process. And so I'm, I'm eager to see what comes out of this committee that Chairman Han is looking to put together. And hopefully we'll be able to put something together that people are comfortable embracing that will make the process smoother so that we can have a team that's marching towards the same goal moving forward. Yeah, I came out of that interview very optimistic as well. I also served as a BPOU chair, vice chair, great in the heart of St. Paul, even at one point. So I do, there is a dedication and service that that our activists do provide, and, and they are diehards for the Republican cause. But I do appreciate this kind of shifting of, of winning, because if we don't win, we're not able to do anything at the end of the day. And it really comes down to that. And one comment about the operatives that we were talking about is because we keep losing, we also lose operatives. So almost every cycle, we have new folks coming in. We, we do have some of the folks that are perpetually around and make a profession out of losing. But unlike the Democrats who each cycle take their campaign staff and store them different places, whether Met Council or the party or or different conference coalitions, councils, Republicans just say, see you later. Thanks for all you've done. And then they go to D.C. or they go to a different state or go to the places where they find that they can win. And then we recreate the wheel. And so it is something that once we start winning, I am hopeful that can continue, that we're able to continue and hopefully develop a new class of folks that can keep us being successful. I think you touched on a very important point, which is that lack of the institutional support for things like that. We don't have the places to stash people. We can't get everybody a job at the U of M. We can't, we can't do all of these things. And it will take the, it will take some vision to get to that point, to acknowledge that it's a problem and then realize that there's something it's a real thing. We need, you trust professionals to do almost everything else in your life. I go to a person, if I'm going to get my teeth cleaned, I go to a dentist. I don't go to my neighbor who knows a lot about teeth, read mm-hmm. about it on the internet. And so there's some, there, winning elections is a profession. And unfortunately, there are a lot of bad people in that profession. I'd say probably more than most. The, most of them that I have met are not the good ones, but maybe that's a function of location. Although I would say in Arizona, they weren't much better, but there are good people out there and there are people who can win. And we, have, it, it is a struggle to find them, but once we find them, we have to keep them and do all sorts of things. We had, you and I had a little bit of an exchange on Twitter. I don't want to talk around it. We can maybe talk at it for a few minutes if we can, as we like to do here on the breakdown. Give me your thoughts on the exchange that we had and your perspective and back and forth a little bit. Was this on 146? On the yeah, you, House you, file 146. Let's yeah. talk about it first. Yeah. And if I can say not to curtail anyone's first amendment rights, we're trying to do it, do things. So just if we can. Yeah, no, at, I'm all about having a serve and return on it. So, 
my perception of the way you were speaking about Finky's bill, and this is the trans refugee state bill, was it seemed as though you were presenting Finky's claims about what the bill does as evidence of what it actually does. Whereas I was looking at the statutory language and how it interacts with other statutes and with the constitution and with the laws in other states and inferring the real world effect that's going to have, which is that you could potentially have a parental custody dispute out of state where one parent engages in what's called parental kidnapping, where they take the kid across state lines and then under the provisions of this bill, effectively cancel the ability of the other parent to exercise any sort of custodial control over their child as that child is given what is being euphemistically called gender affirming care. My point was to, was I thought the use of the word kidnapping was loaded word. I don't think it, I don't think it bears itself out in reality. I think that the, there's a number of concerns that I think people have with this legislation. A lot of questions that I have, but I think leading with the claim that this bill facilitates interstate kidnapping or that this bill kidnapping children, I just think is completely inaccurate. And I think it, what it does is it's a, I think it's, I don't, I can't speak to your motives, but I think the use of that phrase is meant to incite an emotional reaction about that people have towards their kids. That kids are going to be off someone's lawn and brought to the state of Minnesota. And I think that if there was, I think what I would like to believe is that wasn't just a rhetorical argument, but that it was a sincere one. That, and I don't know, and I struggle with that based on kind of the record of what was done. I'm concerned that it was more just about scoring a rhetorical point than anything else. As you acknowledged a subsequent tweet where you cited a Facebook live stream that I did with Senator Eric Lucero, he, if I recall, made that exact type of claim that some just some random stranger could just run up to a kid on some on, playing on a front lawn and pick them up and grab them and take them to another state. And I intervened in that and said, I don't read it that way. I think that's that probably is an exaggeration of what this bill would accomplish. But the way the bill is written, the language in there is an adult acting as a parent, not an adult who actually is a parent or who actually has legal custody or actually has the right to be able to determine issues of consent involving that child. And so just looking at the language, it seems quite plausible that somebody through, through means like the type of grooming we see on the internet where adults will predate on minors by engaging with them on social media and pretending to be younger than they are and trying to get them to agree to meet up or travel or whatever the case, that there could be a situation where an adult who isn't a parent at all is able to get their hands on a child and get them over here. And then as the bill is read, it says that if the kid is here for gender affirming care, we're not going to abide by any requests or orders that require that child to be placed back in the custody of their parents in the other state. So it's, so you were, it wasn't just a rhetorical point for you. You were concerned no, about kids. I'm very concerned about kids. Yeah. I would point out a couple of things. You used kidnapping more than once was not picked up by other house Republicans that used it. Other Republicans didn't use that type of messaging. 
We had a, the House Republicans had a press conference. No one used the word kidnapping to the same degree which you did. And while you did in the podcast, in, in the live stream with Representative, with Senator Lucero, excuse me, I always want to be respectful of the upper body. You did clarify, which was good. There are a number of statements out there where you're talking about it, where I think when you make the claim that it enables kidnapping children, I think that particularly as someone who's written a book about children who were abducted, I think that the street value of that statement is that kids are going to get kidnapped. I will just say to you that I don't think the bill does that. This bill exists in California right now. If this legislation, and again, let me just state the offset. As a parent, as a Minnesotan, I have a number of concerns about the legislation, but this language does exist in California. If, if I believe, if there was a track record of kids that had been kidnapped in California, abducted in California, where are the stories about all those? Representative Niska was asked at the press conference to cite an example of that, and all he could say is that there was documentation of it, but he didn't provide any. I would also say to you that if you legitimately believed that this bill allowed even the loose definition of kidnapping, I think there was more of a responsibility on your part to believe that, to do more to stop it. You could have offered an amendment on the floor to address these issues. You could have spoken at the press conference that was held by the House Republicans on this issue. I know what I would do. I know what I would do if I believed kids are going to be kidnapped. And let me just finish. Sure. I think as a legislator, you have a lot of, you have noted in, you've noted before, and the issue of, of children and kidnapping is somewhat very sensitive to me. And it respectfully angers me a bit, the manner in which I think that you use that terminology. And in light of that, because I think it, it, it bastardizes legitimate kidnappings that are out there when you go out there and you throw that term out there. If you were legitimately concerned that this bill would to kidnap children, you could have notified, if, if you notified Senator Klobuchar's office or Senator Tina Smith's office about your concerns about the kidnapping aspects of this legislation, have you notified the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children? Have you notified the Federal Bureau of Investigation? Have you notified the United States Marshal Service? Have you notified the Department of Justice? Have you contacted or sent a letter to 50 state governors or other people. There's a lot of things that an elected official can do, particularly with, that's a state representative, to raise awareness to issues like this. And I think it was, I think the reality was that the use of the term kidnapping, I think, was intentional to escalate the connection to this. And I just, based on the record of the sincerity, I just don't think there's anything to show that on that point, that there was a legitimate concern that kids would be kidnapped. First of all, let me just say, whenever I'm dealing with an issue that I know is sensitive to the person that I'm talking to, I'm going to do what we talked about earlier, right? I'm going to consider my audience. So my response to this is in that light. If you don't want to believe that I, what I say, then there's nothing I can do to change that. Okay. I do mean what I say. I am being sincere. This is my sincere, genuine analysis of what the bill allows for. There have been cases, at least one that I'm aware of, I can't cite the specifics off the top of my head, of a father whose son was taken to another state and under the laws of that state, I believe it may have in fact been California, lost access to his son and his wife is in the process of having his son 
undergo these medical interventions against the father's will. And the father would have custody in his state and would be able to intervene, but he can't now because the kid is in a different state that allows it. It's not unprecedented. And I do view that, and I think the legal term is parental kidnapping. When you take a child that has, that a parent has legal custody of, and you take them to a jurisdiction, what would we call it if somebody went to Mexico with a kid in order to deprive the other parent of being able to have custodial access to them? I think it would be fair to call that kidnapping. Correct. But the other, but the point though, is that I think that you're also, I think this isn't a fast process. I don't. I think that there was an impression, at least from the debate that I listened to on the House floor, is that a kid comes from another state and this isn't like a, a one-hour dry cleaning thing. This is a long process for a child to receive gender-affirming care. And so intervening with the courts seems, I'm unaware of any type of court process that would speed that up. So it's not an issue of speed, it's an issue of jurisdiction. So the bill very specifically states that because we have this concept the concept of what's called inconvenient oh, i forget the other side of the term oh you know what i'm talking I, about I jeff do, i do it inconvenient uh, form <clears throat> i yeah, think that's I, what it is inconvenient form meaning that and this is like part of the full faith and credit aspect of the union where we say as the several states listen in order to facilitate upholding the rights of each other's residents if somebody comes from one state into another one in order to try to game the system in exactly this way of intervening into a custodial dispute or a criminal case or whatever, un under very unusual circumstances, will that case end up being tried in the state to which the person fled? Because it's an inconvenient form for the other party who, is, who was fled from in order to evade having the issue adjudicated more locally closer to home. And so what this bill very specifically does is it says, if the issue is that the child was seeking gender affirming care, we are going to no longer abide by this idea of inconvenient forum. And we're going to take over jurisdictional control of that case here in Minnesota. And our laws are going to apply rather than the laws of the state from which the kid was brought. That's kidnapping to you. That's kidnapping to me. Yeah. I just, again, I think that, and again, why not offer an amendment on the floor about that? Well, yeah, let me also, why not bring in, I think this debate, a bill, which you've called very strong language. I think there was one amendment you guys did on the House floor. There were two. Two amendments? Yeah. So a bill that is that in use your own language here to describe what you think this bill does. You guys offer two amendments. What does an amendment do? Th this pig was not going to benefit from any lipstick. There was no way to make this better. The entire thing is predicated on a garbage idea that needs to be rejected in total. So I had no interest in amending it. The underlying basis of this bill, I guess there's two prongs to it. There's the gender affirming aspect, the idea that we have to renounce our grasp of reality in order to embrace somebody's professed identity. But then on top of that, on that basis, we're going to intervene in what we would otherwise never intervene in. There are no other examples of carve outs in interstate jurisdiction where we decide that we're going to revoke people's parental rights. Maybe Jeff is aware of some. He's not. Okay. I thought you were nodding because you were aware of some. But this is very unique. 
And if I had, I made my point when I got up and talked about it. You don't have to have an amendment in order to make your point about what the bill does. And as far as did I contact Klobuchar, did I contact this person, that person, my question would be the inversion of all of that. Why aren't these people speaking up? Why aren't they coming out in defense of kids? Why aren't governors all around the country speaking out against what Minnesota is doing in order to deprive their citizens of the right to their children? I think that part of the reason I think that your fellow Republicans didn't adopt your language at that press conference is because they don't believe it does that. Oh, you can think, ask them. I don't no. think that does. And I think that's the point. I think it's kidnapping is a very strong word. And I think that if that if you legitimately believed that kids were being kidnapped, I think there's a lot of things, particularly as a state representative, that you could do. You have talked about that on, on another podcast that you have. You've talked about how being a state representative opens other doors. You were concerned about an issue up in Ottertail County and that you had inquired about that. And I just have to, what's more important? Kids are Ottertail County's politics. And I think it's fair to say, if you can open doors about Ottertail County, why can't you open doors about the safety of kids if you believe that? I guess I'm not grasping your premise of what it is that I'm supposed to be trying to accomplish other than opposing the bill as such. That I'm somehow, what am I going to affect by contacting all of these offices? You're going to, you have said that this bill facilitates interstate kidnapping. In effect. Okay. Do you think, I think if I believed that a piece of legislation would do that, I would notify authorities. It, I would notify law enforcement. That's it, a completely reasonable point. If your premise, to use your words, is right, where all, number one, where are all the kidnapped kids in California? Where are the law enforcement agencies that have been concerned have been dealing with this all across the country? It just simply hasn't happened. And the point I'm making is that if people who are tasked with, who are whose primary responsibility is to deal with the trafficking, the kidnapping, and dealing with missing and exploited children, had a concern about this legislation, and they validated the belief that it led to that, do you not think that they would have spoken up? No, because they're terrified by this gender ideology that's being shoved down everybody's throat. I don't think that's um, the case. It's absolutely the case. And also, I'll also say that the response that I would expect to get if I were to follow this strategy of reaching out to these various offices, the response that I would get, I guarantee, would be, we don't, you write laws, we don't. This is the law of your state. If you wanted to change it, you should have changed it at the legislative process. The reason why we're not hearing more about this particular case the father that I spoke of earlier, whose kid was taken to another state, I believe it was California. If he were to call the cops and say, my kid's been kidnapped, the cops are going to look at the situation. They're going to look at the laws. and They're going to be like, what happened was legal. So while in function, like, I guess the distinction that I have a hard time respecting is the legal, what we legally consider to be kidnapping, as opposed to what in actual reality, the effect in people's lives manifests as kidnapping. Because what's going on with that kid's son right now, being taken to another state so that irreversible medical procedures can be performed on him without his consent, is not considered by the law to be kidnapping because of the law in California. And that's my point. But it is still, in effect, kidnapping. When slavery was legal, it wasn't against the law. It wasn't in violation of any statute, but it was sure was wrong. And that's what I'm getting to is that there's an underlying moral premise that remains correct, regardless of what the law says. I, I, I get your point. And I would just argue that 
I think you chose, I think you're a smart guy. I think you chose your words to gather emotion. And I think that the fact that it wasn't adopted by more people, I think shows that your perspective on the bill is not accurate and it's not reflected by those who I think also have a say in this. Hey, let me bring it in for a landing here, which is I deeply respect the fact that you were willing to bring me in to say this face to face, to look me in the eye and to be very honest and forthright about it. And I don't expect to walk away from here today with you believing what I'm about to say, hopefully over time, more from me and we get to know each other better and you'll be able to, in retrospect, believe that what I'm saying is true. I take what you're saying to heart and I understand that it's very common practice for people, especially politicians and candidates and commentators to use exaggerated rhetoric in order to get clicks and views and inflame people for political purpose and fundraise and all of that. I say the things that I say because I believe that they are true. If other people aren't saying them, I don't know that it's necessarily because they don't believe it's true. I haven't received any sort of, aside from yourself, nobody's come up to me and said, that was out of line. You shouldn't have said that. That's the wrong way to talk about it. And uh, maybe they don't have your initiative to do that. Maybe that's the issue. But what I want to try to leave you with is this is not a conversation that has had in vain because the point that I absolutely agree with that you're making is that when you're imprecise or perhaps not even intentionally, but in terms of the effect, that's what I've been arguing is that the effect is more important than the technical that applies to rhetoric as well. So if people are receiving what I'm saying as meaning something other than what I mean, then I need to rethink how I'm saying it. Yeah. I, that's certainly something that I'll noodle on. I always appreciate that. And I want to end, and I appreciate the discussion. I just want to say that I wish, I do consider myself a Republican and we can have a discussion as to the degree which Republicans are out there. I just have to say that I wish that particularly your rhetoric on this issue was more, I, w I won't say thoughtful, but I do wish that they're left more of an opportunity for discussion. I think that the manner which you approach conversations, I think limits the ability. I met Jeff Kolb because he disagreed with me on a tweet. So I'm very comfortable both being criticized and speaking my mind on some of this stuff. I think sometimes that I think that the language that you use, and I know you don't view that as your responsibility or others, I think prevents people from sometimes having conversations with you. And I wanted to have that conversation with you about that. I do think that I don't believe that standing up and speaking the way that you have on issues related to transgenderism or other stuff is a necessarily a Republican position. I don't think it is. I think that there can be Republicans out there who view the issue more more globally i would argue and in, in different ways and i just would want to say that i also would say that on issues related to medical freedom it's a conversation that we can maybe have when we come back you are someone who spoke at the rotunda of the capitol talking about people's rights to have medical freedom and choose their own bodies and do what they want to do i think it's incredibly inconsistent to then speak about gender affirming care in the way that you do and not want families to be able to consult with their doctors and get those type of opportunities. And I think that those two points are really inconsistent. 
I'll, I will defer that conversation to another time unless you want to have it now. <laughs> no, I think we're, no, if we can leave with an understanding that this is a respectful exchange, I think we've accomplished our goals. Yeah, I think that what we hope this podcast to be today and every day is an exchange of conversations with folks that we might agree with on some things, might not agree on. We've had everybody from yourself to Aaron McQuaid on. I can say that is we had the DFL party chair and the Republican party chair all across the spectrum and have conversations. And I appreciate you coming in and, and getting, wow, we're probably going on an hour and a half now. Well, so taking the time. And there's one, and one, I know I've spoken too long, more than any other episode. I do respect the fact that Representative Hudson came. I do respect the fact that we had that conversation. And maybe it's because of the situation with Jeff, but more of this needs to happen. And I hope that you understand that me having you on it and speaking to you directly eye to eye, I know that I hope that understands, that gives you a sense of my acknowledgement of you as an elected official, as a human being, and as someone that I think by speaking eye to eye, that can very much in some ways lower the temperature and lower the discussion. And I appreciate you engaging that in that today. 100%. Even, when, even if we disagree on stuff. Absolutely. I appreciate it. Well. No one's got anything to say now? No. I think we're, we're on to our favorite part of the show. I think we're done. Don't we have a tweet of the week? We'll do that. I mean, they can, they can we'll, we'll, we can do that after. Okay. We'll do that after. We've, Jeff was late. <laughs> and look, in the interest of full disclosure, in the interest what? of full disclosure to I the late, people, is because I wrote the, I apparently gave the wrong address. Representative Hudson received it. He had to do some additional work. So in the interest of full disclosure, to all the listeners out there, I provided the wrong address. Even though Jeff... Even though the Honorable Jeff Cole had been here two weeks ago, he still screwed it up. And I apologize wow. profusely for that. It wasn't the wrong address. It just wasn't, it wasn't an address. It wasn't an address. I apologize it, it, for that. It was an incomplete address. Where can people follow you on social media? At Walter Hudson. And uh, just in the search box of Facebook, look up for Walter Hudson for state representative. And you are at Jeff? At J.P. Kolb. I want to thank you both for coming today. We hope to have you back another time. That was a, I'll let you describe it. I would describe it by saying that that got a little punchy, but here's the deal. I think it was great that after you guys both went back and forth on Twitter last week, that both of you were willing to sit down and have a conversation. I don't know that either of your minds were changed on anything, but that's not necessarily the reason we do this. Uh, having conversations face-to-face, -face, having conversations with people we disagree with, I think is principle of what we're looking to do here. It's a principle of what politics is. And I think continuing that and, and continuing to have conversations with right, left, middle, telling them things we agree and disagree with about, I think is going to be the kind of what the show has been and what we hope it continues to be. Yeah, I think that we are trying to have respectful conversations on current affairs and break them down in a way where we can have discussions with people. This was, I think, probably an episode of the show that was probably the most challenging subject that we've had so far. And I think the timing of Representative Hudson's appearance was a, a large contributing factor to that. I felt that we needed to discuss the issue that was a source of a discussion and debate, and we approach it differently. I do not believe that his views on transgender people are reflective of the entire Republican Party. And 
I believe that as someone who is a as an advocate of medical freedom, as I consider myself to be, that I think that we should be doing whatever we can to get people the type of care that they need. Gender affirming care to the transgender community is a variety of things. And I think that the science is on the side of getting people the help that they need. And I am confident that the more people that have access to mental health, endocrinologists, doctors of a variety of ways to help them through this process, I think they're going to be they're going to be people that are going to be happier, productive members of society. It does not mean that I understand the issue completely. I'm a white guy from the suburbs. I'm 50 years old, and I just this is not a the world is changing around me on this particular issue. And I can sit and fight it and have protests and say ugly language, or I can try to open as many doors, both myself and having conversations. And I think that we, and I'm so proud of the fact that you allowed this conversation to happen, Becky. I think it's one of those things that for me, I'm not almost 50. I'll give you some credit. You're not quite 50, right? You're 49. But I'm in my 30s. This is something that I think maybe, and I don't want to speak just for my generation or younger Republicans, but I do think that there is a difference between the generations of Republicans on this. I've spoke previously that I am a hippie at heart. I am very rather liberal when it comes to social issues, this being one of them. And so I did want to try to navigate that in in a way, um, try to... Re- keep my comments more on on the issue of messaging that we've had frustrations with. Hopefully, I don't know if any minds were changed today, but I do think it was a com- important conversation, and I'm glad you were able to speak a little bit more on the debate you guys had previously. My hope is that we're left with there's a lot of political debates coming up, and this is an issue. This is an issue in red states and blue states, and I think that both sides are amped up about these type of issues. And what I think in conversation is that there's a lot of people, I think I'm in that, I think you're probably in that, in the middle of just wanting to learn and have conversations. There's extremists on both sides. And on this particular issue, my hope is that a political agenda and political activism isn't being built on the shoulders of of kids who need help. And as a parent, I would do anything I could to get my kid the type of help that they need to get through this process. And so I'm going to err on the side of science and doctors and medicine and peer-reviewed research. And my hope is that every transgender child and adult gets the gender-affirming care that they need to get through this process as best they can. Do I have concerns with the legislation? Yeah, I have a number of concerns. But I'm going to watch the debate at the legislature, watch the process, learn more. And I hope that other people can too. Absolutely. And I hope that you and I can try to reframe what and share that not all Republicans fit in into one specific area, believe one specific thing when it comes to issues, just obviously like Democrats don't, and this truly being one of them. All right. Thank you for being a partner and providing that space today. I appreciate it. And if you're still listening, because this is probably going down as our longest podcast yet, we thank you for being with us. That's right. And we have coming up Tweet of the week. Tweet of the week. Let's let you go first. Minnesota has been the subject of controversy when it comes to food choices. 
long the subject of controversy. The grape salad incident from the New York Times among one of them. Most recently is the governor of Minnesota and the senator, Tina Flint-Smith, chiming in on this chili and cinnamon rolls. What? Have you heard? Racket MN did a debate. Incredibly, Governor Walls hopped on the phone with Racket to discuss the matter in great detail about dipping cinnamon rolls in chili. Come on. Uh, I tweeted, apparently the East Coast is not receptive to cinnamon rolls in chili, and I'm heartbroken. Like, I... I'm sorry, this looks amazing, and only Midwesterners, are, Midwesterners understand. Governor Tim Walls said, I'm making the case. Yes, chili and cinnamon rolls, especially on Fridays, is a thing. And Tina Smith posted a video of her eating it and said, concerningly good, Governor Tim Walls. So now we need some Republicans to chime in. Is this a just a not a Midwest Minnesota thing, but is it a Democrat thing? Because let me tell you, chili and uh, cinnamon rolls dipped in chili... Sounds pretty disgusting. I've no, you're making this up? I am not making this up. I got a video right here. That is Senator F- Smith eating a cinnamon roll dipped in chili. Oh, my goodness. That's amazing. And I consider myself to be a Midwest food connoisseur, and I never heard anything about it. My tweet of the week goes to The Daily Show. The Yesterday, the Manhattan Grand Jury decided to indict President Trump. And The Daily Show retweeted and said, congrats to Donald Trump on finally winning a majority of votes. (laughs) And if you're listening to this episode, I hope this episode will be coming out after our bonus episode. But we did a special bonus episode that we recorded about the indictment of Donald Trump. And there's a lot of great content out there for you to listen to. This is hands down our longest episode. I hope it's not our last. More importantly than ever, I want to thank you for We'll be willing to do this, being a partner in this, Becky. And uh, I just appreciate your uh, your leadership, your judgment, and you're willing to be a contributor to this. It means a lot to me, particularly today. I'm happy to be here. And thankfully, you are too, because at the very least, you run all the tech side, and I have no idea what I'm doing here. It's a good, it's a good partnership. So <laughs> we want to thank you for listening to the uh, Breakdown with Broadcorp and Becky. Before we go, show some love for your favorite podcast by leaving a review on uh, Apple Podcasts. On the platform where you listen, you can also leave a review on our website at bbbreakpod. We're on Twitter at bbbreakpod.com. On Twitter, or excuse me, bbbreak, our website is bbbreakpod.com. And we are at bbbreakpod at Twitter. As always, thanks again, and we will return next week. See you later.